ensuring sustainable consumption and production patterns sounds like huge work when talking about the environmental and social crisis. Such crises can be driven by unsustainable activities on both sides. Changes in these patterns are needed and can help promote the decoupling of economic growth and human well-being from the use of resources. The question then is, how can we all push for this change? And the answer is not a unique one. In this episode, we'll discuss the way sustainable practices have evolved over time and talk about the integration of sustainability into the creation of a better life for all. We are now in the decade of action, and here we'll talk with companies and experts from all over the world about how they're taking actions on the STDs. To learn from each other about the challenges, opportunities, and solutions on the road towards 2030. From the GRI, this is The Rising Tide. Episode on STD 12, Responsible Consumption and Production. The history of sustainable development is an important one. I don't think in sustainability, all of us, including myself, appreciate it enough. And, and I think we can go back even you know, to 1972 when the, the very first early big global conferences in Helsinki on, on environmental issues took place. So it's been you know, 50 years, but um, sustainable development as a terminology and a concept born out of our common future is 35 years old now. You just heard Chris Calder, CEO at Globescan. Globescan is an international insights and advisory consultancy founded in 1987 with the intention to better understand public opinion on environmental solutions. All this by using social science research to try to understand the context of people's responses to help their clients make better decisions and be the leaders on sustainability issues. And someone might think that analyzing the ever-changing context of societies and building strategies for contributing to a sustainable and equitable world is an easy task, but it's hardly been like that. That time was quite government-oriented, and that was the early part of that. And, and it was, I think, dominated by government conversations and you know, NGOs and activism. The business community was one that was quite slow relatively to be deeply involved in it. And I think the biggest change since then has been the um, focus on business because most of the impacts we have in the world go through the private sector. So Chris presents a big picture of the evolution within sustainability as a concept. Simply put, there is now a multi-stakeholder ecosystem, which is quite different from 35 years ago when the term was just created. And when you have to work with such a diverse network, engaging any stakeholder or consumer in the intersection of brand purpose, sustainability strategy and trust, well, you really have to understand the dynamics of the context. Among the things that Chris has done to better understand the ecosystem was a book that analyzes expert stakeholders' views from leading companies. Research that gathers more than 25 years of experience and insights. And when we analyze those results, we, we see these patterns of leadership that have changed over, over the years, which is really interesting. So in the late 1990s, they were pointing to companies like Shell and BP and Dow and DuPont as lead leadership companies in that era. And it was because they were responding to the agenda of 
do less harm, to reduce incrementally our impacts on the environment mostly. And then about a decade later in the mid 2000s, the same expert panel started appointing to different kinds of companies. And they were viewed as leadership companies because they were not only looking at the risks of sustainability, but trying to look at the opportunities and, and things like how do we get our employees excited or attract new employees or how do we build brand equity? And that all required an ability to get the rest of the company involved. So they need strategies. So that was an era that we called the strategic integration era. And then about a decade later, we saw another bunch of companies being identified again by the same panel of experts, seeing the evolution of leadership. And that included companies like IKEA and Unilever and Patagonia and Danone. And, and these companies were being identified because they were very strong at purpose in, in mobilizing and engaging and catalyzing interest in sustainability, both inside their organization, their tens of thousands of employees, and also externally with the thousands of stakeholders, customers, sometimes millions and billions of consumers. And, and, and that was the, the requirement at the time to make this much more of a mainstream conversation. And we can see how that mainstreaming has led to the ESG revolution and consumer engagement and all of that. And now I think we're in a new era, so the fourth era of leadership in this time period, in which we think is, a, is an era of regenerative leadership and the regeneration imperative of having net positive impacts environmentally, socially, economically, the full circularity, um, and finding ways to drive even more systemic change in our in the in the world is is where we're seeing the the focus and of expectation for leadership so it's changed very dramatically actually in the last 25 years and uh, we expect that change to continue and the subtle addition to that leadership is not just to be a leader but a recognized leader and the recognition is where a lot of the power of influence to, to drive the systemic change that's needed. And it's not just about the communications because the greenwashing is so easily to do, but it's really more deeply being recognized and valued by your stakeholders to be a leader. And that requires, yes, communications and clarity and you know good narratives, but it also requires strong performance and engagement and ongoing responsiveness and receptivity to an organization's stakeholders. As we need to urgently drive this change to promote the decoupling of economic growth and human health and well-being from resource use, some approaches can guide us on the pathway for the system change the world needs to see. One is more collaboration, but that collaboration needs to be effective, I think targeted, time-bound, more focused, and ideally multi-stakeholder. And the second thing we have to do is, is drive more advocacy. So advocating for change, both through social marketing, so we, we build that inevitability, but also through public policy changes. And that combination of those two things, I think is where we really do drive. I think we're getting better. There's a lot more um, skills and approaches that need to be developed to make it sharper and more effective, but we're definitely getting better and it, it is the, I think the um, the most hopeful sign that we can drive systemic change at scale and pace um, going forward. And I think the advocacy that has been done around the climate change agenda and the COPs and, and the We Mean Business um, collaboration in particular has been successful in ensuring that Paris and now Glasgow 
pushed enough governments and ministers towards something, there's probably something concrete there that's, that's a clear outcome and accountability. As STG 12 states, it goes for both sides of the coin. It's not only companies that can drive change, or governments, or NGOs. This is also about consumers, their behaviors, consumption patterns, and lifestyles. So we see this gap between what people want to do when it comes to sustainability and their lifestyle, health and well-being, you know, sustainable living, and what they're able to do and some of the barriers involved in them changing how they behave and how they consume and how they move and what they eat, all those elements people are aware of and, are, and have an anxiety related to the current lifestyles that we're all living, but yet they feel very stuck. So I think the collective wisdom from our research is that it's not just about telling people and giving people information to do more. It's very much about creating the, the social infrastructure to allow people to jump into these behaviors that they want to do, so people can live the way they want to live. From the collective wisdom of years of research, Chris tells us that people are basically saying two things. We all need, eight billion of us need two things to truly change our behavior and how we do it. One is that we need to be offered products and services and jobs and lifestyles that are irresistible. And irresistible mean that they're, they're exciting, they're desirable, they're better than the other alternatives, and there's something that's a draw, right? We want to be pulled towards it. So that's, that's obvious. The other thing that they're also telling us is that we need to make these changes inevitable. So irresistible and also inevitable. And the inevitability is what sh shifts us broadly to change our behavior because we know that this is the future, that the future of the way we will move will be in electric vehicles or public transit. Um, the future of our energy supply will be more renewable than traditional fossil fuels. So the, the, and the future of the workplace will be more equitable than it will be hierarchical. So all of these things, once it becomes clear in, in our minds, which, which takes lots of different signals from different actors, but a, a critical mass of here's the future, it's inevitable, that's when we get this massive shift in behavior. Before it's been a chicken or egg, you know, the, the, the company or the brand says we will sell more sustainable products if there's a market for it, and consumers say you have to build a market for it before we do it. So we have this trade-off, right, this chicken and egg standoff in many ways and, and the way we break it is by creating the the context where it just becomes this much more likely that this is where the future is and i think if we have this in mind that everyone is asking for basically a good life then it doesn't matter if you are decision making in the policy area you are decision maker into business you are an individual consumer a citizen everyone i think is involved in creating a good life this is michael kund executive director at cscp the company he founded 15 years ago led by his interest in production and consumption at a time when there was no other institution looking at both at the same time i think living a good life living a sustainable good life we need everyone to be involved. We need the business creating new innovations that have a lower footprint. And in the European Commission, we see a digital product passport coming up. So it's almost like reporting at a product level, not at a corporate level, the whole company, but at a product level. And it's not so important how is the passport in one year, but it's more the comparison among the years. 
So, if an important thing is to engage everyone in sustainability, as Michael and Chris have agreed on, how can organizations support consumers to live a more sustainable life? I think it's important if we want to realize the SDG 12 to see the interconnection between the consumption and production system. So the, the business is really trying to understand how can I support the consumer to be more sustainable in the use phase, in, in trying to support me to repair a product, um, to reuse a product. So really trying to help me to lower my footprints and I think for me, success of business is not lowering their own footprint, it's how much business helps to lower the footprint of society. So also we need new measures on this um, because usually we tend to do on reporting also what do we do about the, the company, but uh, best is if we tell how can we or how is the company supporting the society. So I think there are some leading examples which we can look up to. And then, um, as we all know, it's not just about talking about it, but really doing it in the end of the day. But the story around sustainability has shown us is that it's constantly changing. It transforms realities, but we need to change our mindsets first. For me, it's interesting because I remember 15 years ago, I really had to explain what sustainability is. Today, it's more the question, um, how do we do sustainability? And that at least for me, and it doesn't matter if I talk to the chemical industry, to the textile, to the meat industry. Yeah, I mean, that's something uh, probably we need to break it down. We need to go into every sector and into every household almost to discover the sustainability story. And uh, then maybe uh, we, we develop enough forces to change. The Rising Tide podcast is co-produced by the GRI and Naranja Media. We want to thank Chris Calder and Michael Kuhn for sharing their time and expertise. We also want to thank the Swedish government for making this podcast series possible. We greatly appreciate their long-standing support for sustainable development work, catalyzing actions towards the SDGs. Thank you for listening.